everybody. Welcome back to the Gray Malkin Lane podcast, where queer friends and allies gather to review and discuss the original X-Men comics from the 1970s. Except when we take amazing Neil Adams' work from the early 2000s and set it as a prequel to the rest of the X-Men. Today, we're going to be reviewing the little-known series, First X-Men, which is a fascinating journey into the past. It gives us a whole bunch of new characters and ties in some strange continuity, but it does fit. Uh, I even asked Tom Brevoort once, and he said, yes, it's technically canon. So we're going to talk about it today a little bit. Uh, For those that would like to uh, read along, you know where to find the works, I presume. Uh, I'm thrilled to be joined by three of my favorite people, uh, favorite podcast friends, but also favorite kind of real life friends. Uh, I'm going to let each of you introduce yourselves. Let us know where we might know you from. I know you are all incredible, creative, talented indie creators. Uh, And my question for intros today, uh, who is your X-Men like top crush? Uh, like you're gonna you're gonna spend the rest of your life with this particular X Man. Who uh, who would that be? <laughs> so let's go in the order of uh, Terry Blass first. Hi Terry. Hi, um, I'm Terry Blass. Uh, you probably know uh, me from a six page comic I did about the terms Latino and Hispanic. <laughs> I think that's what went around the internet the most. That's how um, Terry and I first met way back in the day. That's right. Um, as opposed to, you know, the two graphic novels I released before that that were much longer and took years to write, whatever. But the six-page Latino comic I did for the internet um, made much more of an impact. Um, but I also um, recently wrote the Nova miniseries for Marvel Unlimited and Reptil for Marvel as well. Uh, and who's your, uh, who's your top X-Men crush? <sighs> because I'm a 90s kid of the cartoon, I would probably say Gambit. But... If Mystique is down to look like anyone, then that's kind of who I think I'd be crushing on if I had to pick someone to be with like forever. So, there, uh, answer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, let's go to Seth Bartel next. Hi, Seth. <laughs> Hi, Chad. All right. Thanks, Terry. Um, so, <laughs> I am Seth Bartel. I um, just released a graphic novel, a graphic Mundi called The Mayor. Uh, I also do a lot of art for the show and i do not have a great answer since mystique was my brilliant three second thought there of just you saying if i had to not get tired of somebody then i wouldn't be able to get tired of mystique because she's not only insane would be trying to kill you all the time but could also be whoever you felt like or she felt like that day i feel like rogue is your type old rogue <laughs> old rogue okay 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 or maybe also gambit or maybe all, no. or maybe both. No. No. <laughs> um, yeah, pre nineties rogue before Jim Lee got a hold of her, probably. That would have been fine. <laughs> and Rogue, then, uh, can you just go borrow Mystique's powers for a little while? <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, over to my friend Anas Abdulag. Hi, Anas. Hi. Thank you for having me again. It's always so much fun being on this show. Um, so my name is Anas, and I'm a writer, uh, comic book writer from Syria. You might know me from my self-published works, Eleutheromania or Objects in the Mirror. And my most recent book, Etheris, just came out last, like literally a month ago uh, from Sourcepoint Press. And my X-Men crush, I mean, I I can't think of a crush crush. Let's call it a platonic crush um, would be Boom Boom, just mostly because I really want to be her or hang out with her. 
That's a she just seems like so much fun. Like you could never get never a dull moment with Boom Boom. That's a fabulous and very unhealthy answer. <laughs> <laughs> She's very unstable. <laughs> yeah, I love me an unhinged, chaotic character. She she keeps it interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah with, a, with a little alcohol, a little, little, little bubble gum. <laughs> yeah, little substance abuse, you know, never hurt anybody. Fabulous. Uh, <laughs> lastly, uh, this is, I'm already just going to say, this feels very fun. Often I have to like do a lot of prep for these episodes. I just feel like I'm hanging out with some friends today, which is really nice. It's a good energy. Uh, lastly, I'm Chad Anderson. I use he, him pronouns. You guys all know my biography at this point, so I don't need to list it today. Uh, I think my listeners would already know this. My my big uh, X-Men crush growing up was Cannonball. I There's something about just like that good guy, like wants to be there for his family, but also looks fantastic and some you know leather getup that lila cheney puts him in i'm uh, i'm super i'm super into it he's like the hot space dad now i'm uh i'm all over that uh but listen to us crushing on fictional characters uh i'm in my 40s and i can still do that on this show and it's great (laughs) made us (laughs) me too (laughs) you're welcome uh uh no we all have Oh, I'm sorry, Ines, go ahead. Sorry, speaking of Boom Boom, I saw one of those tweets the other day on Twitter that's like, you know how they there's somebody who says something and somebody puts a picture of a character that's like allegedly saying that, that thing? So someone had tweeted, substance abuse? I would never abuse substances, I love them. And someone just put a picture of Boom Boom. <laughs> oh, goodness. That's great. Boom Boom is one of those many characters that I look forward to eventually getting to on my show. But uh, the pace things are going, we're not going to get there for a while. I'll be. Oh, you know who to call. <laughs> uh okay so i i have kind of just some loose kind of conversation starter questions for today uh uh we can answer in whatever order and uh if we spend 10 minutes or 10 seconds on each one that's completely fine we're just gonna kind of chat uh it's just us hanging out today uh i'm gonna go pre-x-men name a book or series that uh you obsessed over uh before you found the x-men uh what comes to mind when you think back to your childhood what is uh that kind of area of like oh man this was like my childhood this is the thing that i was into so much Uh, i'll answer first i was a child in the 80s uh i in my youth i think i the the first thing i was really obsessed over was he-man uh, I collected all the toys. I watched the cartoon. I had like big giant soap opera epics that I had like big battles that I'd have in my room. I had the castles uh, like I fell asleep on the floor of my room more than once, like playing with my He-Man toys. Uh, and then I, I'd like She-Ra was like the other side of that where I like started getting into She-Ra. And then I got a little too old for it. And it was cooler to be into Ninja Turtles after that, which was also a huge obsession in my later teenage years. But yeah, my childhood, I think, uh, is most summed up by by He-Man. I remember uh, having the Orko toy. Do you guys know the little red floaty ghost who's like magic always screws up and he'd like always mess things up in battle. He'd like try to generate a rock, but accidentally make a chocolate chip cookie. And then like Battle Cat would eat it and Evil Lynn would <laughs> come out in her like Hellfire Club gala like... <laughs> leather costume like blast people with her wand and people were getting mutated into things all the time this i had this like a whole head cannon of like playing with my toys for years and then my sister would try to add her barbies in sometimes i'm like they're like 10 feet tall and he-man's like six feet tall it doesn't work like the size proportion is off we can't play together <laughs> These giants coming to destroy the He-Man. land of the fifty-foot women, like 
That's amazing. Uh, what did you guys obsess over as children? I obsessed over a lot of things. Um, so that's a difficult question to answer, but I think the most prevalent thing was probably, and you asked about book series, right? Or comic uh, or book series? It, it could be any of the above, yes. Um, so like the Oz book series, obviously. Uh, uh, hi. You got um, TikTok on the wall behind yeah. you. Yeah. Um, I read all those books, and I think the, one of the first movies I saw in the theater was Return to Oz. Um, that explains a lot, probably, about me. Um, it's a scary show. <laughs> I loved it. I thought it was great. Um, but yeah, I obsessed over that. I read a lot of Calvin and Hobbes, which is sort of probably one of the only comics I really discovered before uh, X-Men. Um, but yeah, like I loved He-Man and Shira Ninja Turtles and all that stuff too. I collect in the eighties, I collected a lot of My Little Pony as well. Um, prior to, you know, the resurgence of the craze of the past, what, like several years. But yeah, that was my, that was my thing was probably Oz. Not for a minute, but we're getting ready to host uh, a trial on my show about a couple robot characters. And I referenced TikTok in my write-up because we talk about like the sentient mechanical man and like people's obsession. Tell us why you love TikTok so much, Terry. I like him because he's the first, as far as I know, he's the first robot in all of Western literature. So I think in Japan, they had had some literature with robots and whatever. But um, in the Oz series, he's, they, we didn't even use the word robot at the time. So they called him a mechanical man. Um, and I like that he uh, sort of Tin Man style, like he expresses that he can't feel or, you know, whatnot, but then he's also very emotional um, and protective. He's like crying at the end of the movie. Um, and so I just always thought that was interesting. That sort of like, oh, I'm not, I'm not real and I don't feel. And it's like, yeah, you, yeah, you do. Like the characters that think, that they don't have that kind of emotional range. Um, and I just liked his um, his silhouette like of his character, um, the way that he moved in Return to Oz. But also later on when I found out that he, um, he was operated by a gymnast who had been on the show Blue Peter, who was um, a gay man, that made TikTok a gay icon in my, <laughs> in my mind. So, um, so yeah several reasons but i think of i think of tiktok as like steampunk tin man (laughs) yeah uh i'm reading i'm reading the original wizard of oz to my kids right now uh and the the tin man is all like oh man my i i I need a heart i just feel everything and they're like he already has a heart it's so dumb and then we got to the chapter where he takes his axe and like like lops the heads off of a bunch of animals that are attacking and they're like what maybe he doesn't have a heart this guy's a mass murderer yeah uh ns what did you obsess over as a kid uh, so as a child of like the late 90s and early aughts, uh, I didn't have access to comic books. So my my first obsession was Power Rangers. Uh, you know, by the time we got them, we, you know, I was obsessed with like Time Force, Mighty Morphin. Um, you know, I guess I've always had a thing for teams in colorful outfits and spandex. <laughs> and I also remember like loving um, like a couple of animated series that I was obsessed with that would role play with my cousins all the time. There was like Totally Spies and Kim Possible, those were like my jam. Uh, what are your thoughts on uh, Rita Repulsa? Oh, love her. She's a, she's an icon, really. She is an icon. <laughs> have you seen Tu Wong Fu? I have not. There's a there's a, a drag queen movie, Tu Wong Fu. 
it, it's Priscilla, Queen of oh, the it's Desert. Priscilla, it's Queen of the Desert. I'm totally getting my reference wrong. Uh, it's Australian drag queens, and there's an appearance by the actress that plays Rita Repulsa in that film. Oh in my God. Which, in, I think it's her only other big role. She dances on a bar and shoots ping pong balls out of her coochie. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, that's going on the watch list. <laughs> it's also an amazing movie. <laughs> <laughs> That's my favorite. I mean, you had me at drag queens, but then you said Rita, so then I have to watch it. And then I said Coochie, and you were even more excited. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Seth, what did you obsess over as a kid? Well, I, I'm sorry. I started to drift off a little bit while Terry was talking, not because of what he was saying. I was looking at Return to Oz because I never saw it. And then just with the Google image search, I went through this fever dream of nightmare that, holy crap, it was weird. I had no idea yeah. what it was. Oh, and yeah. I didn't know Bruce Block was in it too, which is <laughs> crazy. Dorothy. That's nuts. And and Auntie M is played by the same actress who played Carrie's mother. <laughs> so that's amazing too. Wow. With her dirty pillows. Mm-hmm. So, so is this something to watch or is it like watching? Oh, absolutely. I watched Willy Wonka as an adult and not as a child, and that was a nightmare too so like there's so many things that people tell me that they loved as a kid and then i see and i'm like what, what i happened? think if you watch it as an adult you tend to appreciate the practical effects that were used and so people seem to like it for that now and for embracing sort of the darkness that was in the oz books um get but get I, high yeah. first get high yeah. first, and then yeah. like and then it's amazing to tim burton doing the wizard of oz like that's yeah they yeah, they look yeah. like real oh i mean it looks like pretty actual sets they are yeah it's great i had genuine nightmares about the wheelies or the wheelers for the wheelers like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> report wow, back all right, to me. Well, i'll check this one out it's it looks like something <laughs> seth what did you nerd out over a uh, nerd out my word a uh, nerd out over as a kid uh um scooby-doo scooby-doo and thundercats which i think is kind of like why like the gateway drug for the x-men because they were all teams you know they were all like kind of like a unique character who like was like you know a personality type and then it was the same kind of thing when you go into the x-men you get kind of like a little of everybody put together into that group you know like scooby i loved old scooby-doo the music is so good in old scooby-doo and the backgrounds are phenomenal there's just, um, you know, like the show itself is cheesy, but there is a lot of like really beautiful art around it that is kind of surprising. Uh, I'll omit this question in edit if you prefer, but uh, fuck, Mary kill, Fred, Daphne, Velma. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, no. Poor, uh, I can't. I can't. They're all so good. <laughs> You throw Shaggy in there and you're like, ah, who cares about Shaggy? But Well, I love Shaggy and, and throwing Scooby in would have just been creepy. Yeah, well, <laughs> wouldn't put it wouldn't put it past you trying to get just that little extra leverage of, of awkwardness against me in there. Um, hmm. Let me think about it. We'll come back to it. Oh, okay. Okay. So uh, my next question, what is a sacred era of X-Men comics to each of you? Uh. 60s like the the OG that's the stuff I grew up on that was my first like uh, experience with the X-Men when I started reading them I started reading from the very beginning and they have a very special place in my heart they haven't aged very well but I just love those stories and their goofiness so much which is part of why I love this podcast so much I was gonna say have I got a podcast for you (laughs) (laughs) so you started with the 60s and stuck with it 
Yeah, I kept going. It was it was all I had, really. <laughs> it's not like I had a better a better option. Wow. Seth, how about you? Uh, probably. I think I, I know your answer, but I'm 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 gonna see if you confirm it for me. <laughs> um, I mean, like sacred, sacred. I would probably say like Dark Phoenix Saga. I think the most fun is Outback for me, but I think Dark Phoenix Saga is like kind of like that looking back and feeling like it's kind of like an untouchable you can't change it or critique it it just felt like something that was as good as it should get at the time and era that makes sense like it was odd like now when you like look at it as an adult but as a kid when you read it it just felt so big and brilliant and like ended with this big you know you know started and ended with like you know kind of like a star wars caper it was it was big yeah it's it's amazing stuff i just reread it recently uh amazing uh, Terry, how about you? <clears throat> I mean, I don't know about sacred, but um, and I don't think it's necessarily say the best, but sacred for me would have been the 90s stuff because um, that's when I was consuming so much of it. Um, Do you have like a particular yeah. team? Um, like that I would put together or one that I read that I like? Uh, one that's a little more sacred to you. If you look back at the 90s, was there one that like really stood out to you? Yeah, it was sort. It was the team that um, it was around the time that they just had sort of like Storm and Rogue and Cyclops and Gene, like that whole kind of group. Um, but also Psylocke um, and Archangel, like that kind of era, that team in the '90s. That was my team. Fabulous. I think my answer, and again, I've talked about this on the show already. I was most actively collecting early on in the '90s as well. I have some nostalgia spaces for like the old stuff, uh, like Ines said. Uh, I have uh, a particular fondness for early X-Force, even though it's not consistently great. But Nicieza on that book was kind of what really drew me into the X-Men, as well as uh, some of the early Cable stuff. Um, I have a huge soft spot for early New Mutants as well, like up until about issue 65, where things kind of went a little crazy. <laughs> when you get into like that long like Asgard saga where it seemed to go on forever. That's when it kind of shifted for me. Uh but uh a lot of the a lot of the classic stuff too, the Morlocks or like there's particular eras of the book where uh the early Genosha stuff which just it's like really really special. Uh this podcast had made me develop a lot of love for other areas that uh I I've never been for example a big consumer of early Excalibur. I've read it before. Uh, but I recently reread all the early Excalibur stuff for a Patreon I'm doing uh, in a few months. And I was like, oh, this is amazing. So there, there's areas where I'm learning to love them a little bit more. Uh, any spots in the fringe areas of the uh, X-Men universe that are like very, very special to any of you? Uh, where it's like kind of the outliers and you're like, oh, I, I kind of love this particular thing. Uh, I, things like, uh, I don't know, like Nation X show up here for me, like, uh, like st- the X Nation, I mean, uh, series, like there's, there's areas that are just so fringe. Uh, any, any of you have any really special places there? Uh, I, I freaking love ecstatics. I think they're brilliant. So much fun. And I'm loving the excellent, you know, the return. Yeah. Um, but I'm also like one of my favorite X-Men books of all time is X Factor by Peter David. So that was a really like, uh, you know important series for me i i just made me love fall in love with jamie madrix and you know 
uh, Rain, and then all those, the, the entire cast really, I have a soft spot for them now because of that book. And uh, yeah, I just think it hasn't been talked since then. Like, you know, I think the X-Men really do need an investigation team kind of like PI. And I love what Leah Williams did with the team. Like, I thought that was that series was so much fun with, for the Krakoan age. But like Peter David's his book just hits different for me. Oh, so you mean the X Factor Investigations age, not like the '90s Peter David one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gotcha. Although all are great, really, for different reasons. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Seth, how about you? Uh, it's not so fringe, but I started with um, Cross Time Caper and Excalibur, kind of like what you're researching right now. And so it was so confusing and strange as a kid. You know, it was just chaos and nonsense and you know, they were running into versions of themselves and you don't even know them yet as like, you know, when you first pick up the book and it was crazy that they were, you know, he was, you know, Claremont was writing such big long-term stories with like such deep history that like you're reading it as a kid and you're just like, what, you're like, what is this? And that's kind of why you just kept exploring too, because you'd be like, I want to know more why they have such history together or who these people are that they're running into or, you know, why, why their personalities like are very established, which was really cool. And I think I liked all that chaos. And then I really liked going to X-Men because it made a little bit more sense than Excalibur, which was a little bit wacky. Sure, sure. Uh, Terry, how about you? I don't know how fringe it is, but I love Generation X. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. I just love any kind of like teen team. Um, and I think that it introduced characters that people still really love like Monet and Stink and whatnot. So um yeah, that was that was also hit me around the kind of the right age when I was collecting and whatnot. But I love Generation X. Um so that was my kind of fringe, I think. Uh, my my answer will will surprise no one, but uh the original X-Men coming into the Defenders, I've talked about that on the show quite a bit, how much that impacted me. And it's very fringe when it comes to the X-Men, but there's a lot of big X-Men stuff that happens there. I oh man I could list so many things the uh, the Age of X story that they did where it's like the alternate world Legion built for a while was really mm -hmm. powerful. Uh, Mike Carey's work in uh, X Men Legacy where Professor X has lost his memories and is going back and recollecting that's another one I recently reread that's so good. I mean I could I could go on and on. Uh, there's a lot of really special things. I'm really challenging myself even and we're going to talk about this with first X Men today in a while to find the redeeming value in things. I've done enough time on this show now where I've seen the big picture of like how the sausage is made. And I'm really trying hard to figure out like, okay, here's the story they were trying to tell. I'm recognizing there are art deadlines and editorial influence and like legal. Uh, so sometimes uh, First X-Men as an example, it can be a series. I've even talked about it on my show a couple of times that it's kind of a tricky read. But when I went through it this time, I tried really hard to find the redeeming value. And there's more there than I realized. Uh, so I'm trying to I'm trying to be a more uh, positively and optimistically critical uh, consumer uh, in this era of my show right now. Uh, any of you have comments? On <clears throat> I think I mean I really appreciate that because the the older I get, the more I realize that any book, any comic, any TV show that gets uh, that actually gets made is like a miracle. <laughs> you know. <laughs> that that it was a lot of work a lot of people involved sometimes and that all of the right things have to come together just for something to get made and so yeah i try more and more to just appreciate and um because i think the internet and social media has made me bitter and feel like the internet is a toilet 
<laughs> um, <laughs> it, I just try to stay kind of in that positive space when thinking about um, things I read or things that I've enjoyed or whatnot and keeping the things I didn't really enjoy from blurting out all over the internet. But hey, let's review these comments. <laughs> <laughs> Anyone else who'd like to comment on that? Honestly, I, w I was I was the exact opposite. I was very jaded for a while. I think in like my my late teens, I was very hypercritical of everything I consumed, and uh, you know just kept nitpicking and trying to like find holes or you know something like that. But then I just you know I did the exact same thing that Terry does. I just started when I started making comics or wanting to get into making comics. I started appreciating how much work goes into this, and how much like blood, sweat, and tears literally all at once coming out of every you know that goes into making comics and it's just uh yeah it's a very difficult um industry to break into and so now i just have a whole newfound appreciation for the the art that comes out of it yeah it's so hard right it's a fuck ton of work to make but then at the same time you're asking people to spend their money on it so everyone's entitled to their opinions they don't always have like the uh, they don't always pause to think about like what what goes into it because it's consumable, you know, it's, yeah. it's hard. Uh, but, you know, it does. Everybody should try to make a everybody should try to make what they're criticizing before they criticize it. Right. <laughs> I think uh, I, I mean, I'll, I'll use a very small example. Uh, Marvel announces a new X-Men team and they there's a Wolverine like character on it. And people go, why do they have to have another version of Wolverine in this book? Not realizing that editorial has said, hey, you have to have a Wolverine in this book. Uh, and, and maybe you can choose a different one than the main Wolverine. But people are like, God damn it. Wah. Or, you know, you go back to the 90s where Wolverine was in everything or Ghost Rider was in everything. You don't I don't think we often realize how much the editorial mandates were in place. Uh, there are oftentimes when creators have an idea that gets uh, turned out very differently. You brought up uh, Leah Williams' X-Factor. Uh, she's gone on record talking about how that series concluded in a way that yeah. she was uncomfortable with, and she had to wrap up some long plot lines in very quick word bubbles, and people are very critical then of, well, Leah, why would you do this? And we don't often look at the bigger picture. Uh, Knights of X is another recent example. That was pitched as a big series. It got canceled at five issues. And I know there were much longer plans in place for that to go in a very different direction. So I think writers have to be very creative. You've got to build a story, but you also don't know when you're going to be canceled. So here's I mean, what I, I that happened to me on Reptile because they were like, come up with um, a mini series, like pitch a mini series, whatever. And I was like, oh, cool, six issues. So I sort of wrote that out and they were like, uh, no, we're giving you four. And I was like, oh. So now I've got to cut two issues worth of stuff and there's scenes that I wish could have been different because of reasons, but yeah, it just happens. Honestly, Terry, like the, th the work that you've done with the four issues that you were handed, like is, is incredible. You introduced new characters, you made, you know, people fall in love with them and you, you know, wrapped it all up in a neat tiny bow. So it was great. And you Thank gave you. us that hot taco guy. Enrique. <laughs> Enrique. He, he, he can come back and marvel as many times. Everybody should use him <laughs> as much as they want. <laughs> no, it makes sense also that you really like Gen X and books like that, because when you read Reptile, you have like a very kind of fun but realistic version of like what kids would be yelling at each other and like the energy and excitement. I, I, it, it makes it all it all kind of makes sense hearing you say that. <laughs> it's really good. Uh, let me ask you guys, as people who have put out uh, your works, uh, I'm someone who wrote a memoir, which is like a very uh raw part of my story i have to choose what to share and how it's going to be received knowing people are going to look at it differently 
We can do that uh, with uh, with print, obviously, but we're doing it with comics as well. When you guys are writing stories and you're sharing your own personal journey and you're talking through things and then people receive it differently. Uh, this has not been published yet as we record this, but the most recent episode I recorded was on Wolverine the Origin with Paul Jenkins. It's a wonderful, wonderful episode. And Paul talks a lot about how he used a lot of his own story, his own childhood in giving us the childhood of Wolverine. When you are putting your stuff out there in that way, how do you choose what parts of yourself to share or what parts of your journey to fuel your writing? And I, I suppose the other side of that question is, uh, what's it like to see people receive that? I know that's a very big question, but I'd uh, take that however you like. Uh, <laughs> and, and S, will you take that first? Uh, sure. So like, you know, you, you've read my work and you know how personal it is. You know, I, I bear my soul in these pages and I, you know, all often uh, incorporate poetry inspired by Arabic poetry into my work. And so for anyone who is familiar or like knows what they're going into, they already have like an understanding of like, this is going to be very abstract. It's going to be very weird, but you know, it's going to be very personal and it's going to tug at my heartstrings. Um, but with Etheris, it was like the first book that I released to the mass market. And so many people like picked it up just for looking at the cover or not knowing what they were going into. And so I have received some like negative uh, feedback, which was, you know, gut wrenching. But at the same time, like it's completely understandable. Like so many people who read it, they were like, well, I don't like poetry. And I'm like, well, yeah, but this is a poetic comic book. You know, I can't do anything about that. Um, it is hard to take that critique to heart, uh, not to take that critique to heart, but at the end of the day, I mean, I mean, I'm sharing my story, and what what fulfills me is when just one single person tells me that they, you know, they resonated with it and they connected with it, and it gave them some sort of comfort. That honestly just means the world to me, and that's what I'm trying to focus on. Who wants to go next? <laughs> I thought you were going to call on someone. I was waiting. Oh, okay, I'll go. Um... I'm I am working on a um a graphic novel memoir right now. And so that's weird. Um, because yet like you said, you have to sort of pick and choose the things that you feel comfortable sharing or that you are going to put into it. Um with something like I guess Reptile, I knew that it was going to be a lot about family and about representation. Um and so I wanted to include I mean, my my instinct was like, well, he needs to talk to someone, and if it's about family, then he's got has to have cousins. He's Mexican, so great, we all have cousins. <laughs> um, and so, in doing that, I said, well, one of them has to be a girl, and then the other one has to be a young gay boy. Um, and I did that because I I tried to approach it from the angle of like, well, what needs to be represented? The fastest growing demographic in the U.S. is the college educated Latina. So I have to have a young Latina in there. And then I I think it's important to try to write stuff that I would have wanted when I was younger so that someone who felt the way I did about myself wouldn't have to search so hard to find themselves in a book. And so that's sort of how the character of Julian came about. Um, it, is, it's, it, it feels nice when someone does respond with, um, you know, a comment regarding how um, the story or a character affected them or they, um, you know, really resonated with it. That's great. Um, but yeah, I think that just, tr I try to approach it from like a logical point of view of what I think the story might need, depending on what the story is about. Um, so yeah. Gary, can I, can I toss another one at you? 
Sure. I don't even know if you've been interviewed about this character, but you did a uh, a Marvel Infinity comic introducing the character Ambrus. Uh, oh. You had Viv Vision and Nova go off in space. There's a little alien girl. Uh, her society is pressuring her to be a particular way. And so she leaves and has to find her home elsewhere. And I know you pretty well personally. You and I both grew up Mormon and queer and had to leave things behind. Like even that story, I'm like, oh, that's Terry and that's me. And I can totally resonate with Ambrus here. So it's really interesting, I think, that you say that because what went into her character when I was working on her and creating her, I didn't feel had anything to do with sort of like my Mormonism or, you know, with the way I grew up as a child. It more had to do with, it, I mean, it's essentially a uh, like a trans kind of metaphor. You know, sure. they're, they're saying, you know, she, in, in, a, in a really flipped kind of weird way, she... And it, it does have to do with being biracial because I'm biracial. And so to to have somebody say, you need to choose which thing you are and then remove the other part of you, you have to make that decision. Like that's impossible. I can't do that. And so she doesn't understand why that's something she has to do. And, she, and she's like, no, like, I don't think so. So she just learns how to build a ship and take off. Um and weirdly, this is a perfect example. You're like, here's my intention in creating this character. And I open with, this is what I saw in this character. Well, <laughs> like, so when I did they receive when I did it that, differently, like, yeah. Yeah. When I did that six page, like you say, Latino comic, I had a few panels in there in the introduction about I was a super gay Mormon missionary. My parents are Mexican and and white and whatever. And I heard from so many people who who either like, oh, I relate to this because I'm biracial, or oh, I relate to this because I was raised Mormon, or oh, I relate to for so many different reasons <clears throat> and so it's just interesting that i i think the things that we put out there about ourselves someone is going to relate to that and someone's going to relate to something else that you speak about that has to do with you i'm going to say that hopefully we haven't seen the last of ambrose and her pet but that's all i'm saying <laughs> Yay. Uh, and and also, I think we could take that same question back at you. You're, I, I mean, Ethris is about death. It's about afterlife. And I think you write that from a particular place and I read it from a different cultural understanding. And we, we kind of layer our own experiences in these works. It's a really, it's a neat thing to be able to see, but often people again land in criticism as opposed to joy. Of course. Yeah. I mean, you know, I wrote it from a place where I grew up around a lot of, you know, death coming from Syria and, you know, having to live through the war. And so from a very young age, I had to process that question of like, what comes next? You know, where do we go after we die? Are we good people? Do we go to heaven or hell? Um, so really, like, my understanding of the afterlife came from trying to, like, ask these questions from a very young age. And I wanted to tell that through a comic book. Um, but a lot of people who have read it, who didn't have the experiences that I have had, I wrote it in a way that, you know, I mean, I tried my best to really allow the reader to kind of place their own experiences onto the character of Valerie and just place their own experiences on it to see, to see it as a sort of reflection. So I've had people who saw very different things and, you know, were able to interpret the book in a very different way than what I had intended. And they would come to me, they're like, is this, is my interpretation correct? And I'm like, no, but you know, you go for it. Like, it's amazing that you see it that way. Um, but at the end of the day, it's really, it's a book about like self-loathing and trauma and, you know, finding you know, place in your heart to love yourself. Yeah. Uh, Seth, same question to you. Uh, as we're talking about Indigo in Mare. Oh, you, yeah. I mean, the character is a, you know, a teenage female, which is not me. But it, 
but you <laughs> might be in your heart. Yeah, but I think a big part of it was just trying to remember what it was. You know, I tried to remember what it was just like being a kid and not always knowing what your next path should be or what your, you know, what what the right decision for yourself is or how to get out of a funk that maybe you put yourself in. And I think uh, I was hoping that people can just, you know, kind of relate to that and at any age or, you know, remember those times of just, you know, indecision and feeling ineffectual um, and just, you know, those frustrations that pen, like are, are pent up from, you know, that the age, the hormones, like everything in your life, things you can't control. There's just so much going on at that at that time. Um, but yeah, you know, I, you know, I hope that anyone can just kind of get a feeling from it that really something that they relate to that they can take away from it. I don't really care what they take from it as long as it's something personal to them. Uh, and Seth, I know you hoped I would forget, but fuck, Mary kill Fred, Velma, <laughs> Daphne. Oh man. I mean, Daphne's my favorite always. Fred. Just kill Fred. Uh, yeah. No. Yeah. Kill Fred. God, Velma's <laughs> the best. <laughs> Uh, oh, goodness, goodness. Uh, what's it like uh, as creators seeing people critical of your work online? We kind of touched on that, but I, I, I want to, before we transition, that's my last question. I do my best not to pay attention to any of it. Don't read the comments. I am, a, I, I am aware of the like super gay Mexican guy on YouTube who makes reptile hate videos about my run. Um, what? Because he thinks it's, he's gay and Mexican, but he thinks it's too gay and too Mexican. And I'm like, okay, well, if I can't please you, um, then I just try not to pay attention to that stuff because we could read like 15 great reviews and then one bad one. And that's the one we're going to remember. But like, you know, it, it, it's, I'm, I can't please everyone. I don't even like everyone. <laughs> and I have, to, like, I have to remember that like, my work is never going to be perfect because nothing's perfect. So it's best for me to just make something, finish it, move on and develop the attitude of like, well, where's, well, where's your comic? You didn't make one. <laughs> and if you did and you don't like what I did, then that's fine. I'm not, like I said, like, sorry, I didn't please you. It's not for you then. <laughs> like <laughs> I, the, the people I admire who are putting out a ton of work, are likely really busy and likely don't read the comments. So I just try to emulate that. <laughs> the NS? You know, someone said it better than I could ever have. There could be 99 people in a room. <laughs> 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 Thankfully, someone gets that reference. Um, but yeah, like, even if, the, let's say, 100 people read our work and, you know, 99 of them hated it or didn't really connect with it and just one person really saw themselves in it and, you know, they if it really affected them in a positive way, then that's that's what I'm trying to focus on. I I have been guilty of doom scrolling and reading reviews and like negative comments sometimes. But you know, it, it, when I first put out Etheris and I started getting these reviews from people that I had no idea who they were and they just picked up the book from seeing it on shelves, it you know, I took a I took a little bit of a you know a, an ego hit. I was like, oh my god, am I a terrible writer? Like, should I just quit making comics? <laughs> But, you know, um, at the end of the day, I had to realize that this is what I'm putting out something very niche and very, very weird. And of course, it's not going to be for everybody. And if as, as long as a few people connect with it and really like it, then that's all that I should be focusing on. And that's what I'm trying to do. Uh, Seth, same question. 
Yeah, I mean, I really like that they're like they're the niche things because it's like when do you have the opportunity to find you know the strange little corners if you you know if you don't make them. Um, it I, they think they they got to be made, so you, you can't let anybody else change that or try to like you know affect how you're going to make it. Otherwise, it won't exist. Um, yeah. I actually really have been enjoying reading reactions because I've been trying to learn from them. <clears throat> I don't I don't take them too personally. Like going to art school, you get ripped apart all the time and you're really trying to figure out what you can take from it and like what you can learn from it. So it's been interesting to, you know, to uh to to read you know critics. And um I'm just trying to just get something good from that kind of corner. Luckily, nobody's been terrible. And if it, I think that probably when people are terrible, it's probably easier to ignore it. It's when people give you like really fair assessments, you're like, oh shit, like, all right, okay, I got to do this and I got to interpret it and, you know, I, I got to do something with it. Uh, what about you, Chad? Uh, oh, goodness. I, I'm i actually going to wear a different hat for a second uh, and we'll close with this before we transition. So I'm a therapist in my day job, people know, and I do therapy for a lot of artists. Uh, and when I say the word artist, that could be anything from an actor to a filmmaker to a painter to a writer. I'm also interviewing a lot of people. And I think there's a certain psychology that unites people. There's a certain level of, and I say this with affection, there's a certain level of narcissism to attach my name to a podcast or a film or a book or a comic book and be like, hey, read my stuff and like it. But also to have such a thinly veiled ego that I am offended or hurt when someone didn't like it. When it's a stranger that I've never met reading something that I've put out with my name attached. Uh, I think uh, I think I am uh, often most productive when I'm hungry. I think when I'm frustrated, when I'm not using my voice to create something, I tend to kind of close in on myself. And then I start to question myself and my self-esteem plummets a little bit. And I got to find ways to create that. And I really think that describes almost every creative person I know to a particular extent. We want to be recognized. We want to have... We want to have success. We want to have things go well. And when the numbers aren't there or when the paycheck's not what we hoped or when the criticism is present, we have such like thinly veiled egos. It's so important for us to share, which is really special. But I think we have to find really healthy ways to interact with the way people critically receive our work. Just because we're pouring our heart and soul into something does not mean someone's going to love it. Uh, it's an interesting thing. So I, I again, I'm challenging myself on being a more responsible or thoughtful consumer uh, as a person who's reviewing books. Uh, I want to be able to laugh and have fun and be critical, but also, you know, keep in mind that there are some really good, talented, hardworking people who are putting their stories into all this. Not everyone. Some of them are just narcissistic assholes. <laughs> but I've, I've, by and large, through the show, I'm meeting a lot of people who uh, fit into this category. And I think it has a lot to do with our mental health and our creative expression and our own stories and processing them. Uh, I could go on on this for a long time. Uh, any final comments on this before we uh, before we move on? Everyone's like, nope. nope <laughs> I'm, <for> me. <laughs> I'm good. You called us all out, so we're just going to stay quiet. Yeah. Nope. Welcome to podcasting with a therapist. <laughs> uh, okay, so we're going to transition from there into our issue review. Again, I, I hope listeners can hear. I, these are three people I respect and really enjoy. And it's it's this was an unexpected episode. It just kind of happened, but I'm really happy we're together. 
We get a little bonus. I've also been wanting to work first X-Men into my uh, into my reviews for a while. Uh, and I had to ask just the right people who would be willing to read this series. It's good. It's written by Christos Gage, who I think is an incredible writer. The pencils are by Neil Adams, who we have celebrated on this show and who's so belovedly remembered for his early work on X-Men, even though we know there are some controversies around uh, the type of person he was. He also was a, a creative genius who meant a lot to a lot of people. Um, we're going to talk about this series, First X-Men. Uh, it ran for five issues. Uh, before we do, there's one character we need to introduce to this show that has not officially made it on the show yet. He'll get a better introduction in the future, and that is the character of Sabretooth. This is uh, officially Sabretooth's first appearance on my show, which is a weird place for him because he's not even acting like Sabretooth in this series. Uh, Sabretooth is Victor Creed. He is maybe the most evil version of all X-Men villains. We've got the evil geneticists and like uh, Mr. Sinister, and we've got the crazy, you know, uh, uh, like trauma backstory, fight for a good cause kind of villains like Mystique or 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 Magneto. Sabretooth is just a guy who wants to eat your blood and like rape your women and, you know, serial kill his way across because he just likes to do that. He's uh he's kind of like the bigger, stronger version of Wolverine a lot. He's taller. He's thicker. He's like a like a big wrestler build. He's got big, strong claws, but also a healing factor. This guy's been through a lot. He's had adamantium skeletons. He's been a crime lord. He's been uh, a government agent with the X-Men who gets like a device pl implanted in his brain to make him get along with the team. Uh, he's he's a lot of people's favorite villain, but also a villain people are really scared of. He's he's creepy and gross. Uh, so let's begin there. What do you guys love about Sabretooth? Do you have a favorite Sabretooth story? I mean, I don't really I think, think of Sabretooth. That one, <clears throat> sorry, sorry. <laughs> no, go ahead. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I don't I don't really think of Sabretooth that much because my uh, introduction to him was usually from like, for, you know, from the movies and the X-Men Legends video game. Um, but I really, really enjoyed the, the most recent Sabretooth run um, where he was like imprisoned inside of Krakoa and kind of like led a revolution and slash prison break from a hellscape where he, you know, ruled uh, uh, supreme. It was really, really interesting and a good direction to take the character in. I've been wanting to read that, and I don't remember what it's called. Just Sabretooth. <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> <clears throat> I, I mean, for me, the most memorable Sabretooth story um, is when he, like, I think he tricked, is it Boom Boom? And then, like, ripped apart Psylocke. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that was the most memorable story, I think, that involving Sabretooth uh, that I remember reading. Um, aside from that, that's probably about it. Um, so it was interesting to read this comic and get a lot more of sort of his story. I mean... <laughs> Seth, do you have any thoughts? Not a lot more, but maybe I'm mixing that up with the last time I spoke with you. And it was the... Who was the woman with the ponytail that he dated? Oh, Birdie. Yeah, you and I did a whole yeah, thing about there's, Birdie. There's, there's more of her, his story in that. So that... Yeah. That's fair. Uh, Seth, do you have yeah. any thoughts on Sabretooth? Actually, Birdie would have been interesting to use in this story. Um, uh -huh. I'll, I'll get there. Uh, <laughs> it just doesn't feel like Sabretooth. I mean, he's a. they chose a character that I think would have, maybe they were told to pick or something, you know, but he's like Wolverine's buddy. 
cop. I think you put it in the notes, uh, but that's so accurate. It's just it. He's just kind of a, a, a gruff guy in it, not not saber tooth. So that's fine. Yes. Uh, yeah. Saber tooth oh, in general. I don't. I don't really care about saber tooth. He's fine. He's he's a fun character. Like looks wise, I think his his uh, like to, to draw him. He's he's kind of cool, but personality wise, he's just he he can be whatever the author really wants him to be. Sabretooth is to Wolverine what like Bane is to Batman, right? It's like the bigger, stronger guy that you have to fight against. Uh, it's an it's an interesting concept. He's Wolverine's arch nemesis easily. Uh, and that's uh, uh, talked about the Victor Lavelle series, Sabretooth. The second one is Sabretooth and the Exiles. They're both incredible books uh, that have so much political commentary and character in them. Uh, both of them are wonderful. So check those out if you're reading the current books. Uh, the second of Victor Lavelle's Sabretooth series just ended, and there's a third one plan that has not yet been announced. So it's uh, it's pretty amazing work. If you haven't read it yet, it's good. Um, Sabretooth and Wolverine have a complicated history. We're not going to delve a ton into it today, but both of them have a long history of being manipulated by various forces. One of them is the character Romulus, who is like the kingpin version of Wolverine, except he's ancient and like has been manipulating events for centuries. Uh, they've also both been like, uh, they were part of Team X alongside Maverick. Their memories are wiped at the end of every adventure. Their healing factors keep them coming back. Uh, sometimes Sabretooth murders Wolverine's wife and rapes and kills her and leaves her for dead. And sometimes they're hanging out and they're buddies and forming a team of X-Men together, which is what we're going to talk about in this series. So any inconsistencies in character, I think it's not directly stated, but we can assume that this is during an era where both Wolverine and Sabretooth are not quite acting like themselves due to memory implants. And they both likely forgot these adventures later also because of memory implants. Those are the biggest inconsistencies in the series. It was like, wait, these characters are acting in a very bold way in a time before the X-Men even formed. Okay, so the series today is First X-Men. Runs five issues. It's from 2012. Neil Adams, even back in his days with Roy Thomas, always wanted to be more than a penciler. He also wanted to write. And he and Roy, and I've interviewed Roy about this, uh, butted heads sometimes over how much Neil would get to write. Neil Adams is listed not only as the penciler and inker on this book, but also is listed as the writer. I get the idea it's very Marvel methody where Neil Adams came in and did all the art and then Christos Gage came in and like offered input on the plots and tried to make it all work together. And I'm not exactly sure what that creative process is like, but I think that that's probably what salvaged some of this and kept it in continuity because I know how hard Christos Gage works to keep things in continuity. And we've reviewed a few of his books on my show already with X-Men Spider-Man and the recent Gwen Stacy uh, series. We've covered some of that content already on this show. Uh, Clayton Cowles is on letters here. Nick Lowe is the editor. Uh, and Matthew Wilson is on colors. Uh, this book, before we delve into the continuity of it, what was it like for you guys to read this book? We're not going to get into the specific plots yet, but... Uh, Taking your time back to this like pre-X-Men history, again, it's called First X-Men, which is a bold title. What was it like for you to go through this series? Um, I thought this should have been X-Men Origins Wolverine, like the movie. Like that would have been a great plot for that movie instead of whatever the heck they did with that one. <laughs> but, but, you know, this came out way later. Um, I was shocked while reading it that this came out around the same time as Hawkeye by Matt Fraction and David Aja. Yeah. Uh, like, wow, these are contemporary books. They seem like they're decades apart, honestly. <laughs> In terms of style and like storytelling approach, it seems very, very different. 
That's what I was going to say is that <clears throat> they do seem sort of decades apart. Um, and that was what stayed with me sort of the most as I read through it. Um, not only that, but I, I was like, felt, I felt slightly lost at the beginning just because I was like, wait, so did Wolverine go back in time? Okay, no. Is this just happening before all that stuff? Maybe. Like, I was trying to piece all that together. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, I think that in the writing and the art style, um, it did feel, I think, slightly older than I thought it was, which mm -hmm. I don't think is necessarily a bad thing. It just had that kind of feel. Um, yeah. First off, I thought the colors were gorgeous. I mean, they, they were really beautiful through the whole book. One thing about the feel of it, and I don't mean this as a terrible criticism, but I don't think that if it's supposed to be the first X-Men and feel pre-60s, the style of clothes, the style of hair, all felt like late 70s, early 80s. And I don't know if that's just kind of like how maybe Neil Adams was drawing and what, you know, he was just, but he's old enough to kind of feel like, like to know what was of that era. And he was even drawing in that era. So I was kind of surprised that stylistically, it didn't feel like it was intentionally made to look more dated purposefully, you know? I would have wanted I would have wanted an editor to really make that choice is like go super hardcore make this look really 60s. I uh I would describe this series overall as a book that tries really hard, but at the end of the day I'm relatively ambivalent about it. There's things that are redeeming in it. The hardest part for me to put together is where it fits into the specific timeline. It seems like there's big areas where a lot of time has passed in this book without being addressed as such. You get the idea that, oh, they're like training these kids in the woods, but really in the continuity, like five years would have passed. And like, where does all this fit into it? It tries really hard. And again, they do a good enough job to make it fit into the character's continuity, but some of it's wonky, some of it's uncomfortable. It's kind of like when a writer wants to go back and do like an early Fantastic Four story. And you're like, wait, Sue Storm's supposed to be like 11 here, but she's 20 in this issue. When you try to like do that type of thing, it's it's tricky and you kind of, you have to stretch your suspension of disbelief just a little bit farther. But it is a good book. Uh, ultimately, there's several new characters that are introduced that are very obscure fringe mutants at this point. They don't have that classic 60s feel for me. They're characters that were kind of tossed into this story that supposedly continue to exist in the universe, but... They're all a little bit forgettable for me as uh, as much as I want to like some of them. We'll, we'll talk about them a little bit as we go. So format for today, I'm going to do a brief summary of each issue. And uh, then we'll talk about it a little bit. We'll, uh, we're not going to delve super deep into anything, but for my, for my guests today, ask any questions you like, provide any commentary you like. Let's, uh, let's talk about what happens. Issue one is called Children of the Atom. An old combat buddy of Logan's asks him to check up on his kid, who is a mutant. And that kid's name is Anthony Piper. But when Logan gets close to this kid, that Anthony explodes. And then the government takes them away by the time Logan wakes up. And already, if if, if you guys have read this book, you'll, you'll see what I'm talking about. You're like, wait, what the hell is happening? You're like on page four and like a lot just happened. But also you have to read it three times to figure out what happened. That's kind of my experience with the whole series. Uh, during a walk in the zoo, Logan recruited Victor Creed, offering to pay him money to help him rescue any kids that might be in danger. And he reminded Victor of his own past when he was a child locked in the basement by an abusive father, giving the, the insight that they're very close friends at this point. 
Logan and Creed break into a facility in Quantico, Virginia, where Anthony Piper has been strapped to machines, and uh, and and there's files on potential mutants everywhere. They steal those files. They're attacked by armed guards, but they manage to escape. Although they had to leave Anthony behind, assuming he was dead. Uh, pause one moment. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, now having intel that the agents were moving in on an 18-year-old mutant girl named Holly Bright, who is surviving on the streets by taking money to use her mutant powers of casting illusions to give men their biggest fantasies. So she's kind of a, a prostitute with her powers, but not her body. She calls herself hollow, like short for hologram. Uh, and she uses illusions to make herself appear more beautiful. She's barely 18. The government agents attack Hollow. She scares them off with a big old monster illusion uh, and then escapes uh, with Logan and Creed. At Oxford University, Charles Xavier and Moira McTaggart are planning their wedding. So this is the era of Charles and Moira together before he goes off to war and she dear Johns him and marries Joe McTaggart. So this is back when they're in love. We can add the Krakoa stuff. They're planning the future of mutants together, apparently, behind the <laughs> scenes here. Uh, but Charles and Moyer are planning their wedding. She's putting pressure on Charles to invite his estranged stepbrother, Kane Marco, who never appears in this series. But uh, this is before Kane gets dropped in the in the temple in Korea and becomes the juggernaut. Uh, Xavier assures Moira, you do not want Kane there, which is funny. Uh, and Xavier then rushes off because he sensed other mutants nearby. He finds Logan and Creed and Hollow. It's also important to note, uh, Xavier and Logan have a more complicated history. This is not their first meeting, but we'll get into that another time on my show. Uh, the, uh, the three mutants warn Xavier about the government files, but Xavier is determined to have a quiet life as a professor. He just wants to marry and settle down and have kids, and he says, leave me alone. So Logan and Creed then decide to go after a different name on the list, that of Eric Lensher. Uh, then we flash to Magneto, who is in Argentina hunting down escaped Nazis, and he violently kills a man named Erhorst. Uh, and that's the end of issue one. Uh, what are your thoughts on the introduction of this series? <laughs> Magneto's haircut's really interesting. His haircut is hideous. <laughs> Whose haircut? Magneto's. Magneto. Oh, yeah, it's crazy. <clears throat> I mean, I think it introduces a lot of the characters, like the things that it does, the, some of the things that it needs to do to set up, you know, the story that is going to unfold. Um, I was confused because when the kid exploded, I was like, oh, so he's dead. <laughs> like the power, I think, wasn't wasn't explained in a way that I understood it right away. Um because I like, did he come back together like werewolf man style from uh, Monster Squad? Like, I don't know. You know what I mean? Like, I don't, I don't know how. Like, he's he, a, uh, he's a little like, kind of like Nitro. <clears throat> yeah, he's like Nitro. I was gonna okay. say, he blows up and comes back together. Cool. Um, <laughs> oh. But um, yeah, I don't know. Other than that, I was like, oh, cool. They're in the zoo. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I did like seeing Moira and Charles talking about like their life together their potential life together i thought it was kind of a fun scene but yeah i don't know it's That's weird seeing logan and creed together it's weird seeing them trying to save mutants together that feels like a cause that's not quite in character for them uh and us do you have thoughts on the first issue um i actually really liked holly uh as a character throughout the book i thought it was very interesting i like her power set 
I don't know why they would go with the name hologram because there uh, were there any holograms in the 60s? Was that a thing? Or like, <laughs> was it a reference to holographic because she could shift something? I don't know. Maybe it's a <laughs> reference to how she feels inside. Her name is Hollow. <laughs> Maybe it's also short for Holly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I yeah, I think Holly was like the, the you know the highlight of the book for me, and because I was so com like comparing this to X Men Origins Wolverine. I was like, oh, she's the silver fox of this book, you know, uh, who was in that movie in a very, very weird way. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, let's move on to issue two. This one is called Common Cause. We open in Colorado with a mutant named Ben Golden Dawn. His codename is Yeti. He is a Native American guy who's covered in white hair and is apparently super strong and can slash things. And his hair is very sacred to his culture, he references. And we get more than one scene of Wolverine chopping his hair off for some weird Very reason. offensive. It's very strange. Yes, that, that's my big comment we got to talk about later. <laughs> uh, uh, ben also has a brother who has apparently been taken by the government agents. And so he's recruited, or Yeti is recruited by Logan, Creed, and Hollow. They go back to Virginia and they find that Anthony Piper, the guy from last issue, uh, his name is uh, Bomb, is the code name he chooses. Uh, he wanted to choose the name Bombastic Aghast for his name, which I kind of prefer, but they just call him Bomb for short. He's still alive and now he joins them. They go out into a remote cabin in the woods that belongs to Logan. And Logan starts training these three mutants, Hollow, Yeti, and Bomb. Uh, he cuts Yeti's hair. Um, we referenced that already. In Argentina, uh, Magneto is hunting Er Kraus when Logan and Creed seek him out. So they've traveled all the way across the world here, <laughs> just like off panel. Uh, uh, they, they have already taken care of the Nazi for him, but Magneto has no interest in joining them. Paulo uses her powers against Magneto and uh, makes him appear like he's in the concentration camps, but he's too powerful. He breaks through the illusions. Uh, we go back to a secret government facility, and now Bolivar Trask is here, and he's using news of a flying mutant in Argentina, which is Magneto, as a reason to stoke more fear into mutants. He doesn't even consider mutants to be human. Fred Duncan is there, and uh, Seth Martell and I are two of the resident experts on Fred Duncan, having done a Patreon episode on this guy together. Uh, Fred Duncan is the X-Men's ally from the FBI, a human agent. Fred Duncan's there. He argues that mutants are actually good people, some of them, and there have to be other ways besides building adaptable robot hunters to take them down. And then we meet a guy named Director Hartfield. He's like the FBI director, and he gives Bolivar Trask another billion dollars for his Sentinel project. Uh, then he introduces his new recruit, who's a man named Lyle Dorn, D-O-O-R-N-E. Uh, his codename is Virus. He's a blobby, creepy spider frog thing that's like a demon frog on spider legs. And he digs his claws into a host body that like carries him around. This is like one of, this is like 90s horror villain, like one of the scariest, <laughs> ugliest mutants ever. And ultimately, I kind of think he's just gross and stupid. <laughs> <laughs> so virus is apparently working with this uh, government organization of humans who are trying to gather mutants. Uh, let's talk about issue two. Let's let's start with Yeti, the character Yeti, who is not to be confused with the Sasquatch or that guy from Weapon Prime, who's also Yeti, or the guy from First Line, who's also Yeti. This is a totally <laughs> new character. Uh, what are your thoughts on Ben Golden Dawn? Everyone's um, speechless. It's cracking. <laughs> I don't know why. I, I like. 
I think we need a sp- to set like a specific order for us to know if it's our turn to go. Everyone's so polite. You can just talk. It's fine. <laughs> I'm just mad that his hair got cut. Last issue. Uh, do you want to start there, Terry? What the 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 hair issue is obviously very problematic. Well, not only does Wolverine think he needs a haircut, but he calls him a hippie, as if it's like not part of his culture to, if it means something. That just seems so strange to me. Um, so I thought that was really bizarre and like um, unnecessary. But then Hollow making magneto relive the trauma of being in the holocaust <laughs> was way more unnecessary and i was like oh well she was trained by wolverine so i guess she okay that's how she learns um i'm not sure she knows how her bizarre. powers are going to work i think it just kind of <clears throat> showed up but yes it's still very problematic. okay <laughs> um and then yeah the virus character to me kind of reminded me at first a little bit of what's his face mojo like mojo is that his name sure like the mojo verse whatever but i was like this is a clive barker fever dream like this character like a hellraiser kind of it was just so bizarre weird not i don't know like that he has to have a host body that he he doesn't like possess it he like piggyback rides on it and leeches off of it like that's kind of gross (laughs) But he's totally Krang from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Oh, he's totally Krang. Um, like yeah. he's even got the same face. Like it's it's scary how much he's Krang. How that did not occur to me is baffling me because of course he's Krang. Yeah, he's the creepy brain with the arms. Yeah, yep, gross. He's gross. <laughs> and he needs a body. He needs a big body to like move around. Uh, Seth, do you have more thoughts on issue two? Oh, I mean, just that virus. Like if I was the artist that's like kind of when you pitch an idea and you're like yeah i'll just draw this thing and i'll make it creepy and then you're like why did i do this there's like i have to draw another character on their back and all the <laughs> arms and all the little virus like like huge like, oranges. <laughs> so much work <laughs> so much work but um yeah i mean i get the concept of him like that he's you know the the gross mutant you know that's not what he wanted to look like and lived a very sad beginning but i think you come to that in the next issue right so i don't want to spoil his origin there's an interesting piece about these fringe mutants trying to protect kids and xavier and magneto both being like we don't want to be involved it's like an era in their stories where they're very self-absorbed with other ideas that part of the prequel is interesting to me because it's kind of setting up what's going to come next obviously it also works in continuity we see xavier with moira we see bolivar trask in his like early sentinel development we get some backstory for fred duncan we see magneto hunting down nazis that part works for me uh Anas, what are your thoughts uh, I do, I do agree. I thought it was very interesting to see, you know, the, the backstories of Charles and and Eric before they, you know, went on their separate journeys. Um, I have to say, when I first read the, I think in the first issue where Moira was present, I read her speech with like a southern twang, so I didn't know that was Moira. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know what I was reading. I was like, oh right, so I was supposed to be Irish. <laughs> uh, <But> yes. <laughs> Super offensive uh, of <laughs> both Wolverine and Hollow to do whatever the whatever that was the thought process behind that was, um, and I wish it ended there. You know, I wish the hair cutting ended there, but it's it's a recurring theme in the book for some reason. Yeah, for literally no reason. It's so stupid. <laughs> uh, okay, so as we have Wolverine's as if Wolverine's like got amazing hair. <laughs> 
better than Magneto's. <laughs> well, yeah, sure. Uh, okay, so we've got Bomb, we've got Hollow, we've got Yeti, and now we've got this guy Virus working for the government. Everyone else are all characters we're familiar with, but readers, we're, we're obviously throwing a lot, at, or listeners, we're throwing a lot at you, obviously. Issue three, now things get even crazier. Uh, it's called A Place to Belong. Armored government agents attack a homeless mutant on the streets, and it turns out it's Namor during that time when he had amnesia for like 40 years, before the Human Torch burned his beard off. And he's like, oh, that's right, I'm I'm a super guy. <laughs> Uh, Logan and Creed arrive with their group and they fight back, but Namor lashes out at them and it, uh, I don't know, it ends fine. Fred Duncan introduces himself to, to Logan, giving him intel that helps them in the fight with Namor because Bomb can blow shit up basically. And then Duncan shows us to let all of the mutants go despite the soldiers' protests. Namor wanders away in his amnesia and is believed to be dead. And I'm sure that Namor appearing here surprised all of you. <laughs> we'll talk about that too. Uh, Reed is healing from his own bone breaks. Hollow opens up to him about her own tragic past. We learn her mom left and then her dad started hiring her out to his friends to use her powers to like create fantasies for them. But then her dad died and then Creed sleeps with her, which is so creepy because he's like a hundred years old and she's barely 18. And Logan right calls mom. her JLB. Yeah. yeah. And he literally <laughs> calls her JLB. <laughs> <laughs> and then soon the team's off on a new mission and they're looking for uh, Yeti's brother. But then we go over back to Xavier. He's using his powers to sneak into the Pentagon to review his own file, as well as the files of Bolivar Trask about the mutant menace. And Xavier and Trask are famously going to have a debate uh, publicly in the first Sentinels epic, which is it's kind of an interesting setup for these two characters. We also see reference to how Xavier used his powers of telepathy to enlist in the army. Uh, apparently he had the doctor submit a blood sample from someone else so that he could hide his own mutant status, which is a fascinating thing. Uh, just a little nugget of Xavier uh, that's that's really interesting. Uh, there's reference here also to the tragic loss of Xavier's brother. So this is like Xavier and Moira were planning their wedding. Xavier enlisted in the war. All that shit with Juggernaut happened and all those like deaths Xavier ex experienced telepathically, which we see in a Claremont story. Uh, Moira, dear John, to married Joe McTaggart and then had Proteus. All of that's like in between issue one and three. All of that stuff happens. Uh, so it's weird to see how all that stacks up. Anyway, Xavier uses his powers to convince his superior officer to station him in America. We'll get more of him in a minute. Uh, back in Pennsylvania, <clears throat> Trask accused Fred Duncan of being a mutant himself because of how he handled Logan's group. But Virus is there and he assures them all, including Director Hardfield, that I can salvage things. Just give me a chance. And then he takes over the form of Forrest Golden Dawn, who is Ben's brother. I don't quite know what this guy's powers are, but apparently he's a mutant. And now Virus is riding around on him. Uh, Logan's group then attacks uh, they cut Virus away from Forrest, rescue him, and then rescue three other mutant kids. We'll learn more about them in a minute, but one of them's a bouncy lava kid. One of them's like, he kind of looks like Tar Baby from the Morlocks. He's like a stretchy, shadowy Tar guy. And then there's a girl who looks like she's covered in feathers and can jump, and then they escape. I know I'm throwing a lot at you again, listeners. This is a wonky series. Uh, it, let's talk about issue number three. <laughs> Terry, do you want to go first this time? I was excited that uh, that they were like, oh, cool, they're adding like other mutants to the team and whatever. Are, are any of them women? Just the little bouncy girl, I think. Unless she's not a girl. Okay. I don't know. 
maybe it's a boy. Well, maybe- well, we needed we needed to know so that we didn't feel like we were being smurfetted like here. <laughs> um, like, I mean, that's already happened with the original X-Men with Gene. So it's like, come on. That's why I was thinking that uh, this could have been something with um, Birdie, like bring her in or whatever. I don't know. Some other girl <laughs> that, that yeah. has some sort of association with Wolverine or Sabretooth or whatever. That's that's big with me. I always need more women <laughs> in my story. This book does, this um, book does not pass the Bechdel test. Yeah. <laughs> um, no. Um, but... I, I I was still unclear on Yeti's brother, like his power. Um, and I think it, am I jumping ahead in, in this issue? Does like, does the cables that are like, whatever that's going into him get severed or is that? No, like that happens issue? here. Yeah. Yeah. They slash him up. Oh, okay. And then they take, they um, take forest back with them to their little hideout. Because then that was like sort of this slow reveal that, that uh, virus can still sort he's still sort of connected to him despite the fact that he's physically not connected to him anymore like once he infects someone that kind of still he's still able to like either see through them or control them or whatever do you know who, um, do you know who virus reminds me of is the character johnny d he's the guy with like the open vest that has like a face on it and he like can feed DNA to it and then like it hatches like a little doll that he can control people's thoughts with. Uh, uh, Steve Orlando just used this guy in Marauders, uh, but the Yeti, or not Yeti, a virus reminds me of Johnny D. I'm just realizing. Oh, I don't know that. <laughs> he's a weird, he's a weird. Um, so yeah, I feel like there was a lot of stuff happening here, but I, I was excited by the introduction of these new mutants, but then I feel like a couple of them in my mind kind of blend together visually i like the idea of like of the silhouetted kind of character he looks more just like when he goes into his powers he looks more like a a shape or almost like a flat paper mario kind of character and i think that's interesting to draw um but but yeah those are my thoughts You're going to hate me, but I didn't even, like, realize that this was a character until the final issue when they meet their father. I was like, oh, where has this character been? Because I didn't even (laughs) notice him there. Uh, Anas, do you have other thoughts on this this, uh, section? Uh, Was this the issue where we dive into Virus's backstory? That's the next one. That's the next one. I mean... It's it's a solid issue in terms of like you know and it hit, it hits all the right notes you you get the story pro- moving forward, not really much um, you know to write home about. I do so far I, you know uh, you know Holly is my favorite character, and I can't really th- I don't really have many thoughts. Uh, were you guys surprised to see Namor here? Oh yes. Um, so for Namor, when he touched the water, I, I really thought for a second that this was going to get his memories back and he wasn't going to have to wait that long. But then they just like made a comment and passed him like, oh, water. I like that. Like, okay, maybe shower more. I don't know. <laughs> uh, there's also a, a weird history be- between Professor X and Namor. Uh, during this amnesiac time, it's explored in Chip Zdarsky's uh, Invaders. I'll do this issue review. I remember that. Time. Yeah, where he manipulates Namor's memory. It's 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 really interesting. Uh, Seth, did you have thoughts on issue three? I mean, only that it's just like classic Xavier fucking around with everybody to get things the way he wants them to be. You know, uh, uh, that's that's on point. So um, outside of that, I forgot. I, so I, I read this back when we did the Duncan episode and I forgot Namor was even in it. 
because it's just <laughs> a, a bizarre tangential kind of appearance, you know. But um, and again, we can we can see Gage working really hard to keep it in continuity. He's referencing the war and the loss of Kane, and uh, but yeah, it's it's all kind of just supplementary. Yeah, but I think if I was like a big continuity fan, it probably would be exciting, you know, to see these things pop up. Issue four is called Things Fall Apart. And here's where we learn the origin of Virus, as he explains them to Fred Duncan and Agent Danzig. Uh, he was born to human parents. His dad worked with radioactive materials. His mom worked with x-rays. They had a deformed mutant child. And Virus felt both loved and hated by his parents growing up. They kept him in an attic where he reasoned, you know, maybe they're trying to keep me safe. Uh, so he tried playing with like mice, but they died when he touched them. And then one time he touched his mom and then she died. And then uh, he killed his own dad and used him as a host body and burned down the house behind him and then turned himself over to the government. I'm oversimplifying. It's a little more tragic than that. But you get the idea that if this kid had had a different environment, perhaps on Krakoa, maybe he would have learned a different kind of life. But his circumstances turned him evil. Uh, he is also secretly controlling Forest Golden Dawn from afar because he once used him as a host. Uh, Logan and Creed are still training their team. There's the bouncy lava kid, and uh, he's a former soldier, apparently, and he takes the name Meteor. And then the soldiers are getting restless, and Logan and Creed are weirdly, weirdly buddy-buddy here. And Danzig, uh, the agent, is shocked when he learns that FBI Director Hartfeld has deployed an early prototype of the Sentinels to go after the escape mutants. So we get the Sentinels here, which is crazy. It's technically kind of their first canon appearance. And uh, Danzig asks the incognito Private Xavier for a ride. The Sentinels attack uh, Logan's group and the military closes in and they have a shoot to kill order in place. And the mutants realize that Forrest is still in control of Virus. Uh, the team are able to stop the Sentinels super easily because there's this stupid design flaw where, like, their brains are exposed. So, like, basically just push this button. It's like it's like uh, the zombie apocalypse. You just had to take a knife to the brain and then they, they will shut down. Uh, but then Virus attacks and takes over several of the mutants. Uh, there is a lot that happens in this series. Let's talk about issue four. Uh, Seth, do you want to go first this time? <laughs> no um <laughs> uh gosh i just feel like i i you know i when i, I remember when i was a kid and they would do like a, a an x-men team in the back of a what if issue and i would be so excited about that team and i would draw them because they were so exciting you didn't know who they were but this team just doesn't um have they fight and I feel like they don't have enough personality where I was, I'm excited by every character. And that's a shame because they're interesting. I, but I feel like they're just being used as like to move the plot along as like the soldiers, you know. Um, but there's so much that happens. You're right. Like a ton happens. It's fun to see the Sentinels. And I think that's why they appear. Um, always good to see Duncan. Uh, but <laughs> And oh, and it's very sad when the mice died. You know, very sad when he killed the mice. They look like they died a very painful death. The, the idea of Logan and Creed have just been training the kids in the woods this whole time, but Xavier was also off at war the whole time. And we're we're meant to believe he was at war for years. So either Xavier was at war for a couple days, or, or they've been keeping these kids in this like mountain cabin for three years. I it's it's a that's the hardest part of the series for me to reconcile. Yeah, time yeah. Is, is there the timeline? 
yeah, it's it's and this is before Professor X is is uh, disabled, obviously as well. Uh, I mean, and I oh, I'm sorry, Terry, go ahead. No, just real quick, I was going to say that I think that that's an opportunity to like to say, okay, yeah, we have been training these kids for three years, and then now you're able to jump that story ahead a little bit with their powers. So maybe that their powers are stronger, or they're more interesting to draw. Or, you know, like that, I think when you have inconsistencies, I think like that, or not, maybe it's not an inconsistency, but just like a vague thing. I try to see that as an opportunity to go like, okay, well, how do we use that? And I think that would have been kind of cool, especially when the fight is kind of with these sentinels, which I thought was ex like, that was the part that I was most excited about. But I also think that had the sentinels if this is kind of their like first reveal appearance whatever then it was also an opportunity to make them look like not like we recognize them right like the very first iteration of what a sentinel would have been looked like in the 60s and that's another mm -hmm. way that you establish sort of that timeline in that era um and i think that would have been really cool who does i mean one thing that I try to remember when I'm writing comics is like to not get too hung up visually on the way that a character looks in its like haircut or its or its superhero outfit because it's going to be different in the next run anyway. Like everyone wants to make up their own, you know, everyone wants to like, oh, now I'm going to progress the character's look and whatever. It's always going to be different. So I think people love to see different versions of like, like who doesn't want to see a sentinel from like the far future or, you know, whatever. But I think that's an opportunity to establish the um, the period, if you will. Uh, Ns, what are your thoughts on Virus's backstory? I thought it was very tragic. I didn't really get the sense that he killed his mother by touching her because I was like, wait, was he just never touched or you know cared for as a as a toddler, as an infant? Like, so I just thought she died of natural causes or like you know from the X rays, I guess. Um, I thought it was you know a really sad story overall, and yeah, I, I think he has a very interesting power set that I think you know if you mentioned um, you mentioned that he could really work in Krakoa, I think he could be like really good friends with Cosmar because they would like connect yeah. on their you know their differences. Um, as for the rest of the, the team, you know, if there was a time jump, I didn't get the the sense of it. Um, the little kids were still very little, um, you know, I. The, they had two fire-based mutants who just hurled fireballs, so it just really was not very visu very visually, you know, attractive to me. <laughs> it was kind of all, like, meshing together. Uh, but I did like that, you know, Holly couldn't use her powers because of the Sentinels are robots, etc. And we got the first appearance of a fastball special, so that was really fun. There's also uh, the, 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 the supervillain that's like, I'm ugly and I kill things because I touch them and that's the power I was born with. And now the world doesn't understand me. So I'm a supervillain. <laughs> there's there's a certain level of like emotional understanding I can give to those characters. And there's a long list of these particular types of characters. I mean, Toad, very, yeah. <laughs> Toad falls on that list, but it's more explored in characters like Wither or, uh, you know, the. the you kind of get their reason for doing crimes. Uh, it, it's it's tragic in that way, but also kind of uncomfortable because they're never painted with a lot of sympathy. It's always just like, here's this horrible <laughs> monster. Okay, issue five, this is the last one, is called I Dreamed a Dream. As a sentinel stabbed the character Meteor, 
Uh, Hollow got in Virus's head and distracted him while he was stabbed. But then Virus made Creed kill Hollow, and Creed blamed Logan for her loss. We'll talk more about that in a minute. Fighting off the rest of the Sentinels, Logan yelled at the kids he'd gathered to all go off on their own, which is very much like a, I took a stray dog home, but now get out, get, get boy, like I can't take care of you anymore. <laughs> and we literally never see any of these characters again. Uh, Super Agent... Harry and the Hendersons, right? Oh, yeah. I, I, oh, I haven't seen that in a long time. Uh, Agent Kyle Danzig gathered up his two mutant kids, uh, whose names are apparently Jamie and Joseph. These are two of the little ones. So this is a, an FBI agent who apparently brought his kids to the government because he thought they would help. But now he's going to run off and raise them on his own instead, uh, which is a weird moment because you don't care about <laughs> these characters. <laughs> Before she died, Hollow gave Creed a whole vision of a future where they married and had kids and grew old together. And you almost have to wonder if she's like telepathically influencing him. This is a very Somnus story. This is like the the power that the Steve Orlando character Somnus has. You can like live a, a, a whole lifetime in one night with uh, him in your brain. Uh, Duncan assured Logan that he had nothing to do with the attack, and told Logan that he uh, that everyone involved in the project had been fired, and he had now been appointed the director of the Department of Mutant Affairs, which is literally how we meet him back in the 60s in X-Men number two. When Xavier first sneaks in and meets Duncan, he's working in the Department of Mutant Affairs. Uh, Bolivar Trask is humiliated. He lost his government funding, and he's got his son Larry at his side, which I appreciate that they threw Larry Trask here. He's now determined to go on and build the Sentinels anew, which sets him up for his first appearance in X-Men number 13. Uh, Logan attacks Hartfield in his home, and you're meant to believe that he is killed, but we go off panel, so we're not quite sure. Then we flash to Magneto, who has vowed to form a brotherhood of evil mutants of his own uh, someday. Then we see Creed track down Logan and vows to kill everyone he ever kills, or has everyone he's ever cared about, which is in a weird way meant to be the motivation for why Creed hates Wolverine so much because Hollow died and he blames her for that. But there's so much more history between these characters that we won't get to today. Uh, and then Weapon X shows up to recruit Wolverine, who, by the way, has had no adamantium through this whole series. So all of that stuff happens after this. Uh, then the series ends with Professor X touring his mansion, uh, turning it into a school, and putting up a sign that says Xavier's School for Gifted Youngsters. But it's literally years before he recruits the X-Men because he still has to go be paralyzed by Lucifer and meet Amelia Vogt. And uh, like all, all of these things still have to take place. Like Jean Grey, uh, I don't believe, has experienced the death of Annie Richardson yet. And that's a whole decade of time. So uh, the timestamp on all this is also very fascinating. Uh, and that's the end of First X-Men. Let's talk about uh, issue five. Uh, <laughs> uh, NS, will you go first here? Um, yeah. Overall, I think they they definitely tried to take some big swings and not all of them landed. It was interesting to see, you know, the kind of backstory behind uh, Logan. But his, you know, his meeting with, with, with Xavier, you mentioned that he meets Xavier at another point in time, right? Mm -hmm. They have another encounter later on. Um, before you know, and after <laughs> <laughs> okay I just felt like you know as it stands this is canon but it definitely feels separated enough that it doesn't feel like a lot of anything that happened or took place in this event really came back or you know was relevant in any way so I don't have very strong feelings about it I, I enjoyed it for what it was 
but um, yeah, I'm probably not going to remember it in a couple of years. That's that for which is unfortunate because this has like the concept has a lot of potential. Uh, uh, Seth, what are your thoughts on issue five? Sorry, my mouse died. Um, so who is oh, much, dead? Much like viruses, mice in the attic, your mouse died. <laughs> Sad. So, upside down. Um, so who is dead and who is not? Like, I got real confused in that last battle. I think only Hollow died. Just Hollow. But Meteor got like a cable to him, but like, I don't even know what Meteor does. Does it? I don't know. So that part was like, it got real chaotic. And I just was trying to like kind of follow it and feel like there was some investment. And I just, I think that's where I got a little lost. Um, but all these characters really could still be out and about this whole time. It's interesting, right? I, I think I was surprised that it wasn't just a big massacre because then why couldn't Xavier recruit them later for the X-Men? Because Xavier only likes pretty white kids. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> Uh, hollow instead of birdie. There's an interesting thing. Uh, Terry, do you want to comment on that a little bit? There there's, does seem to be a similar vibe um, in Creed's relationship with hollow as he has with birdie. Yeah. I mean, I guess inappropriate is the word. Um, but I, I, I like that, you know, as hollow's dying, she does this sweet thing, whatever. Cool. But why is the only woman have to be the one that dies? Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh my I hate it. Um, I hate that. But um, you touched on something that I think for me would have made um, this this series a little stronger in terms of me liking it would have been um, when you said that Xavier only likes pretty white kids. Is like, <laughs> had there been more people of color, more mutants who were people of color in this run, I think that would have made it a story that felt like it was something historical that happened in the, within the X-Men that we had just not heard of because history doesn't tell us these stories. We did get uh, we did get Bomb, who is black, and the two golden... And we got Native American, yeah. Yeah. Um, but they're not really sort of the focus. Right. Right? Um, like Bishop time travels, just make it Bishop. Why does it have to be Wolverine? I mean, I know it has to be Wolverine because he's popular and... And they were probably like, you know, throw in Sabretooth because we need someone who's like going to butt heads with him. Great. But I don't know. I think that this, it could have, it could have been a little different. I, I did enjoy reading it. I thought it was a fun read and um, not something I'd ever even heard of before um, you asked me to read it. Um, and so I'm glad that I know this story now, but I, I think that adding in some of those X-Men, those mutants that, that weren't really that developed. I don't know. It's difficult. Like we were saying, who knows? Like maybe they thought they were going to have another issue because it's only five. Maybe they, you know, there was a lot of things that we we don't know about this this run. So I'm not super critical of it, but there are some other things that I think could have been um, in it as opposed to others that would have made me, I think, maybe enjoy it a little more. It is not yet scheduled, but we will review at some point the limited series Avengers 1959 on my show, which came out in 2011. It's by Howard Chaikin, and it tells the story of Sabretooth, Craven the Hunter, Namora, and other characters being recruited to a 1950s, uh, 50s Avengers team by Nick Fury. Uh, so this would have been that weird era for, for Creed where, for whatever reason, he was like a good guy for a little while. 
the parts I like most is as we're kind of wrapping up here. I like the setup for Magneto. I like the setup particularly for Bolivar Trask and Fred Duncan that's given here. I think the early Sentinel idea is really interesting. Like there's this design flaw and now he's got to go do it on his own. Uh, I like that they threw in Larry Trask. Uh, The most forgettable part is all the characters they throw at us. There's just all these brand new mutants that you kind of don't care about with the exception of maybe Hollow who they kill. There's some potential there, I suppose. But like what have these characters been doing for the last 30 years? Uh, Do they know about Krakoa? Are they ever going to be mentioned in a comic book ever again? Uh, virus is a weird kind of outlier bad guy that could be used there. Um, and then we, we lead Wolverine directly or Logan directly into weapon X at the end, which so the, the, the tie-ins are there, but this is ultimately a series that I want to like more than I do. I do see a lot of redeeming value. Neil pencil, Neil Adams pencils are so revolutionary in the sixties. And for me, they just lack the same kind of magic here. As uh, as uh, I, I think this is a time when he's being celebrated, which is you know uh, a, a a decade before he passes away. Basically, uh, I I think it's cool when you give uh, older creators this space, but the pencils don't stand up in the same magical way that I would want. Uh, I think yeah, I think we kind of covered the beats. Is there anything left unsaid? Anything uh, you guys would like to talk about about first X Men before we wrap up? If it were up to me. I would bring back Hollow and just say that she was like, guys, I'm out of here. This is not for me. And that she just made an illusion that made everybody think she was dead. It was mastermind the whole time. He just looked like a girl. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. What'd you say, Anessa? I'm sorry. I would resurrect her. I'd have the five resurrect her, honestly, just to bring her back. She has a really cool power set. I love anything with illusions and her illusions are very powerful. So there has to be some telepathic element to them in some way, like you mentioned. And I think should be a really fun addition to like a small team like the New Mutants. Yeah. Or at least someone to put in the backgrounds of Krakoa somewhere. <laughs> oh yeah, because if they yeah, resurrect like... her, then she she would be young and she could be in the New Mutants. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? It's just crazy that there's like four guys that just ran away from this that spent one to three years training together that you just never hear again. And that's totally like nobody's picked it up. Nobody's thought about it. I mean, the... It's not that they have to be uninteresting. They just didn't really get developed here. Yeah, yeah. And the Agent Danzig going off with his two kids, uh, like, I'll be your dad now. It's such a throwaway piece, but that's easily something that could also be picked up by uh, by writers. Uh, I wouldn't mind seeing Virus again. I think he'd be interesting in the right hands. Uh, but boy, is he weird. <laughs> Uh, so that's first X-Men, everybody. Thank you for riding along with us. I hope you were able to, uh, enjoy and learn. And, uh, this is very fringe X-Men nerdy knowledge. Uh, this is like the Star Wars universe, but like the Star Wars holiday special version of the X-Men universe. Like, (laughs) if you know Chewbacca's wife and kid's name, it means you've seen the holiday special because it doesn't matter in the movies. <laughs> this is that kind oh, isn't of it? Is it is it Life Day? Is that what it's called? Uh the the Star Wars holiday, holiday special. I think yeah, it's I think it is. Holiday that special. Right. Well, I I Life Day. I watched it on uh, at Christmas for my cringe movie night. It was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> but you get a special yeah, musical Michael number by it. B. Arthur. That's the that's the only Star Wars TV show I want is is a TV show set in B. Arthur's bar. <laughs> <laughs> so weird. 
Uh, all right, everybody, this has been delightful to hang out with you today. Thank you uh, for your time and talents. Uh, as we uh, as we close up, we're going to put this episode out on May 18th. It's a bonus episode that week. Uh, what would you like to plug and where could people find each of you online? Let's go in the order of Aness, Seth, and then Terry. All right. Um, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram mostly. I am Aness underscore Abdulhaq. And you can find my new comic book, Etheris, on shelves now. So please go pick it up. If your store, if your local comic book shop doesn't have it, you can still order it. I believe Diamond and Lunar still have some copies in stock. So hurry up and get it while you can because we might actually sell out. I hope you do. I hope there's a second and a third printing, my friend. Me too. That's awesome. I so wish, I, but you know, I don't think the, there's enough demand for a second printing. So I, I think maybe when we sell out, which we'll like you know, it'll be over. It'll be limited edition. <laughs> uh, Seth, you're next. Oh, um, uh, SethChristianMartel.com or at SCMartel on social media. You can pick up my graphic novel, The Mayor, in bookstores or comic books doors or yeah just any place you can buy a book wonderful and terry uh you can see my work and my books on my website terryblast.com and i think that my newest work is likely my short in the anthology young men in love which is uh recently the glad award-winning um best graphic novel whatever over heartstopper mind you um so check out young men in love and my books, Reptile and Lifetime Passes, are probably some of my newer stuff. Um, you can check those out on my website. Wonderful. Uh, I will commission one of you for a print of virus on my wall sometime. I'm just kidding. I don't I don't want that. That's not gonna happen. <laughs> <laughs> You're gonna get it now. Uh I, I can I can learn to celebrate virus if the right story is told. Uh okay, lastly, I'm Chad Anderson. I keep my own social media private because I've got kiddos, but the three of you can add me. Uh, but the podcast, you can follow Patreon. Uh, uh we have regular episodes coming out on Twitter. I am Gray Malkin PP like podcast and on Instagram, uh Gray Malkin underscore lane. Uh the next episode after this one is going to be reviewing another early 2000s book set in the 60s. We're almost through this batch. Uh, there's a big there's a big stack. When I started this year, I'm like, geez, there's a lot of stuff from the early 2000s. Uh, this one is a, a book called Fantastic Four, The World's Greatest Comic Magazine, number three. Uh, it, it's uh, an early Sentinels appearance, uh, and the X-Men are in it with the Fantastic Four. It's a lot of fun. My guest on that episode is the uh, classic artist Gordon Purcell. Uh, on the Patreon right around this time, we're going to be putting out an episode on the character Starhammer, who is the sole surviving member of the Dabari race, the, the planet that was destroyed by Jean Grey. He has a crazy origin story. Uh, and my guest on that episode is going to be Neil Clyde. Uh, all right, everybody. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you, Terry. Thank you, Anas. Thank you, Seth. Uh, we'll see you back here next time on Grey Malkin Lane. Thank you for listening to Grey Malkin Lane. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. Grey Malkin Lane is produced and recorded in Salt Lake City, Utah, with music and editing done by my husband, Michael Bell, and promo art done by the incredible Seth Martell. Look for us on Patreon, where we are releasing weekly episodes about obscure characters and facts. Uh, it's a great way to participate with the podcast for only just a couple of dollars a month, and it helps support what we are doing here. Also, the best way you could help Graham Alkin Lane is by sharing and liking and subscribing, but also please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'll see you back here next time on Graham Alkin Lane.